Hello, everybody, and welcome to one of our irregular special podcasts, an interview with returning guest, friend of the show. I think this is the fifth time we've spoken, possibly. It's, I think so. <laughs> it's author David L. Craddock. Welcome back. Uh, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. We've spoken about uh, your books on Quake and Matters. Uh, we've spoken about uh blizzard blizzard games we've spoken about uh classic golden age coin ops and we've spoken about xcom but now here we are again so what's the subject what's the topic well it's funny i was going to say almost to this point i think the list of topics we haven't discussed <laughs> might be shorter yeah. than those we have but i found one uh it is mortal Kombat, the subject of my next book trilogy of books is uh, the yeah. not only the making of the Mortal Kombat games, which is kind of my wheelhouse, but as we'll get more into celebrating the fan community of Mortal Kombat, and the, and the trilogy is called Long Live Mortal Kombat, which I, I feel kind of embodies that that spirit. Yeah, so it's, uh, you're obviously talking about a franchise that is still going strong to this day with uh, MK11 and its uh, its ultimate version. That's uh, that's still. A present on many people's hard drives, I imagine. But of course, the book, being uh, being one of your projects, goes all the way back, and in fact, um, goes back to prior to the beginning of Mortal Kombat, and actually starts with some solid history on Midway and their role in the Golden Age of arcades. Yeah, I wanted to start there just because I. One thing I like to do with these books is, as much as I like technology and games i really consider them a stage for people the the real uh, the players in these productions to kind of live their lives and yeah. you know, they're, they're the reason that we care about the stage in the first place so i wanted to go back and and tell a little bit of midway's history before before they acquired before williams acquired midway and they rebranded their their video department as mm. they called it uh, yeah. midway to to kind of learn about the the foundation they were built on, which was pinball, because uh, mm. Ed Boon, the co-creator of Mortal Kombat, has a background in pinball specifically. Yeah. So what uh, what do you think was? Uh, 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 yeah, it's weird because now it seems like there was no time at all looking back, really, between the golden age of video games. If we're talking about Defender and Robotron in the early their their output, Williams output in the early eighties, and then we're talking about just a mere 10 years later in 1992 we're coming up for the 30th anniversary of the first mortal combat but at the time for those of us who were there it felt like an eternity especially those of us who were who were children so i went from being uh, uh 10 years old to 20 years old in that time obviously that you know it was half my life and the the landscape of arcade video games just changed so much yeah, that's something that I only learned about in retrospect. I'm a tad younger. I was 10 in October 1992 when Mortal Kombat came out. A so good age I just, for that. <laughs> I, it, it was, you know, such a good age. Uh, I, I owe my parents a lot. They always just said, look, we don't really like this game, but as long as you're not going around getting in fights, it's just a Ripping game people's and, spines out, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, just kind of a fantasy, you know. Same with Dungeons and Dragons and Magic and all the other stuff I was allowed to dabble in. And they never found they never found the body, so that's great. Anyway, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, uh, you know, it's really interesting. The one thing I w when I think of the Golden Age, I know what that refers to. It refers to the late seventies and early eighties yeah. of arcade games. But yeah. the, the funny thing is, I guess since I didn't get to experience that until after the fact, I always think of the Golden Age as extending into the eighties, like mid to late eighties. When yeah. really that's not. That's kind of not the case, right? Because there was the North American video game crash in the yeah. 80s, and it was uh, Street Fighter II in 1991 that was kind of, I think it gets a lot of credit, but I think most of it is deserved for kind of resuscitating arcades. And then yeah. Mortal Kombat came along a year later, and hey, fighting games became a huge attraction, a reason to go to arcades again. Yeah, how much did Street Fighter II's success contribute to the existence of Mortal Kombat, would you say? I, that's a great question. I actually have a full chapter in the book on kind of this oftentimes friendly rivalry between Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat fans. Yeah. I, I, first of all, I would say objectively, Mortal Kombat I, I probably wouldn't exist without Street Fighter. And I add the probably kind of caveat in there because 
you know, really John Tobias and Ed Boon, the principal co-creators, were inspired by martial arts movies and they wanted to make a martial arts game. They, they, uh, I, I spoke with John Tobias among many others interviewed for this book, over 60 people. And one point John made is that they, they really weren't consciously reacting. He and Ed weren't consciously reacting yeah. to Street Fighter 2, but they did obviously have to take it into account. They they really set out to make a game that was much more about aggression. I, I love Street Fighter. In fact, I think technically uh, Street Fighter 2 uh, Turbo Hyper Fighting is probably my favorite arcade game. One of my favorite arcade games. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that game could be, it really kind of rewarded a lot of cheap strategies. If you had, I mean, almost every character had a projectile and you could each stand at one end of the screen and just throw fireballs at each other and the, the projectiles would collide and dissipate. So there was really no impetus for one of you to stop and say, okay, let's actually throw some punches here, close the distance. Mortal Kombat, one decision John and Ed made consciously was, okay, you know what? Instead of having projectiles collide, we're going to have them go right through each other. Yes. They'll each take a hit, and at least one player will say, "Oh, this isn't working. I'm going to get in." Yeah. Because Mortal Kombat was all about, you know, it it was you know based on a lot of martial arts movies. Bruce Lee was a heavy influence. Enter the Dragon was a heavy influence, and in those movies, they didn't stand across a stage throwing fireballs. They got in and and punched and kicked until they won. And so, even though I would say Street Fighter Two was kind of the the giant whose shoulders on which Mortal Kombat stood, it. it it very quickly distinguished itself as the other fighting game archetype. Because if you look at it going forward, 30 years later, the two top fighting games are still Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat. And most yep. imitators follow one or the other. They really kind of were their own molds back in the day. Yeah, and we should say, like, even four years before Street Fighter 2, we had Street Fighter 1, and that was coming off the back of games like Data East's Karate Champ and Konami's Yaya Kung Fu from earlier in the 80s still. And of course, Mortal Kombat wasn't even the first digitized combatant fighting game because uh, Atari made Pit Fighter in, I guess, 1988 or 89, something like that. I want to say that's probably the development. It's It was released in 1990. And the funny thing is I know that because I talked to Rob Rowe, mm -hmm. who who was the, the chief kind of animator in, in charge of the digitization on that game. He's now um, a, a very high-level executive at Pixar. Oh, and wow. What I'm doing with Long Live Mortal Kombat is uh, you know me by this time. If I'm not writing, I'm usually writing. <laughs> and so – as kind of a way to promote Long Live Mortal Kombat's Kickstarter on March 22nd, I thought, I'm going to just write a free book that is used to promote the big book. And so ah, I have right. this adjacent book that people can read for free by going to davidlcraddock.substack.com. It's called Cool Stuff. Hmm. Cool Stuff with a K. It's an allusion to a secret cheat menu in, in Mortal Kombat 3 on Super NES. And... I actually interviewed Rob about the making of Pit Fighter and digitization, why he thought Mortal Kombat caught on, whereas Pit Fighter doesn't really have the greatest reputation <laughs> these days. So no. it, it, it's really like even back then in this primordial ooze of the games industry, there was still a lot of points of reference for companies like Capcom and Midway slash Williams to use. And yeah, so of course... It's 1992 and Street Fighter 2 is already uh, kind of overwhelming the arcades. It's already had a couple of upgraded versions and, and there's also various pirate ROM hacks going around and all this kind of thing. And then Mortal Kombat arrives and looks really distinctly different and feels really distinctly different. Um, you mentioned the martial arts movies there and, and perhaps Street Fighter 2's success influenced the sort of the inclusion of maybe the more... Uh, fantastic elements, I suppose, the glowing green orbs and things like that. But actually what I think I always, uh, they, they doubled down on it with the sequels, but the first game, there was already that sort of hint, obviously with the fatalities, but also this kind of this darkness, this weird atmosphere. It was, it felt like a, it had the sort of with the, with the stop motion kind of puppet sub boss it had a kind of ray harryhausen but it also had it had a kind of forbidden fruit quality to it as well with with the gore and the violence and the that sort of dark fantasy what what was what was going on there from the creator's point of view well, that was definitely something john and ed did on on purpose in fact they said that um when they set up the room in which they filmed the actors for mortal Kombat. um 
they wanted to go for sort of a moody lighting and have that carry across in the game. And that was, you know, kind of evocative of the films that they liked. It was also, you know, uh, John, in addition to being a fan of, of martial arts movies, came from a comic book background. So that was sort of the time when comic books were kind of getting to be more specular, still uh, still a deep story, but more spectacles as well. Hmm. And it was also a way to distinguish Mortal Kombat from Street Fighter, certainly. I mean, Street Fighter was looked like, hey, what if Disney made a violent animated movie? And <laughs> Mortal Kombat was like, this looks like a movie. In fact, I remember the first time I saw Mortal Kombat, I was in an arcade with my dad, and the crowd of people around this game was so thick, and the, and the kids... Uh, were so tall, teenagers and young adults that I couldn't see the game, but there was a second monitor mounted above. The game was so popular that the... For spectac- spectators, right? Yeah, it almost felt like a boxing match or a pro wrestling show where if if you have nosebleed seats, you're watching the giant screen. And mm. what I saw, I knew they were playing a game because of the environment I was in, but I thought, you know, this looks like a movie. And then one of the guys ripped out the other's hearts, uh, <laughs> heart. And I thought that that was actually really, this is something else I explore in Long Live Mortal Kombat. That was a turning point because up until that, I couldn't really articulate this at the time, but in my mind up to that point, video games were toys. They were Super Mario Brothers or Legend of Zelda. Mortal Kombat was something that looked real and had a really, it was almost kind of scary for me as a 10-year-old kid. Like I've never seen anyone kill anyone before i guess that's what mario does to goombas when he stomps them but it's <laughs> kind of it has kind of a looney tunes tom and jerry bap sam pow quality to it right it's 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 not meant to be taken seriously and yeah yeah certainly you could that was kind of another point in each fighting game's favor street fighter was more of an animated movie and mortal Kombat was the the r-rated bruce lee film your parents didn't want you to watch yeah, but of course it was and and remains, thinking about even the cutscenes of the more recent ones from kind of nine, the reboot onwards, There, it, it is that weird mishmash of very uh, kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's not high intellect stuff, the Mortal Kombat uh, kind of character interaction story. Um, it, you know, it could play for children, but the gore is, has gone, gone from level to level to level. Um, I, I actually, I wish I'd uh, managed to catch up with the, the more recent movie um, because obviously mm-hmm. that was one of the things about the 1995 movie, the Paul uh, W.S. Anderson one was that um, it, it was really fun and campy and goofy, but because of the certificate they wanted to hit for, because, you know, to catch the market of the people actually playing the coin op, they couldn't really make it as violent as the, uh, as the game itself in some ways. Yeah, it was interesting how they kind of toned things down. You know, you had Shang Tsung say, fatality, after Sub-Zero froze some nameless warrior <laughs> and, he, and he shattered in midair, but it wasn't bloody, right? And yeah. I, I think that was the thing. I A lot of the people I talked to, so for, so for Long Live Mortal Kombat, I not only talked to developers, but I talked to pro players, I talked to fans, because I wanted to share a lot of personal stories about the connections fans have formed with Mortal Kombat over the last three decades. And... Almost to a person, people said, yeah, the, you know, the first thing I thought was really cool was the blood and guts because yeah. you know, two reasons. I mean, one, like you said, it was forbidden fruit. And, and the more you say you can't have that, the more we want that thing. And and then two, it just you'd never seen anything like that in a video game before. It was intriguing just because even though it might have been a lot of sizzle, very little stake to a lot of people, it was eye catching. Yeah. But, they said that 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 was kind of almost the there was surface level observation. One thing arcade games didn't do is they didn't really care if you were thinking about them when you were away from the arcade. They just kind of assumed that you were and assumed that the game itself was enough to get your quarters. But you know, the first time I think the first time I beat Mortal Kombat was with Scorpion, and two right. things happened. One, I knew his fatality. It's the easiest to do, just up up. Everyone probably learned that one first. Yeah. And then you see that, oh, wait, this guy peeled off his face. He's like a skeleton. <laughs> is is he dead? Is he undead? Is he a demon? And then you find out in his ending that he actually entered Mortal Kombat to kill his nemesis, Sub-Zero, who had killed him and his family first. And that's the thing. Mortal Kombat was fun just to watch. You know, when, when you would watch Street Fighter II's attract mode, you'd learn all sorts of scintillating details like Ryu's blood type and, <laughs> and his weight. But Mortal Kombat was like, oh, 
Here's, you know, Sonya Blade, who's a lieutenant who's after Kano. Who's Kano? Oh, well, yeah. in his attract mode, he's he's a mercenary. And why does he have a plate over half of his face? And he has a glowing eye. Can you shoot lasers out of that eye? The game was almost as fun to watch as it was to play. And, and you know, John and Ed, they were kind of funny. They, they'd said that over the years, oh, gee, we, we, we definitely designed our game. We didn't want people sitting around watching. We needed to get your quarters. But they built on that. Whereas, like you said earlier, Capcom spent several years just putting out new versions of Street Fighter 2, and each was more mechanically sound than the last. And clearly Capcom was catering to the the then embryonic competitive scene. But Mortal Kombat was turning out sequels, each with a new look, bringing back returning characters who might have different appearances. It was a small thing, but in Mortal Kombat 2, Sub-Zero, or Mortal Kombat 3, he had a scar over his eye, he'd shed the ninja costume, and you instantly wanted to learn wait, what's, go- what's going on? What's his Why? story? Yeah. Why is he different? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Even as a, uh, you know, I was in my early twenties when this series was hitting and, uh, and yeah, I, I, even I felt a little bit kind of old for it in some ways, but also <laughs> I loved it. You know, I was, I was buying the, I remember spending 60 quid buying the, uh, the super Nintendo home ports. Uh, I didn't play it much at the arcades simply because I found it incredibly difficult and it yeah. was, uh, it was an expensive play. Um, but I remember seeing teenagers crowded around the cabinet with, uh, with those little pulpy guidebooks that they used to sell a tape <laughs> to magazine covers over here. Um, and uh, I guess trying to work out a lot of the the secrets and and all that kind of thing. So uh, yeah, it was definitely part of the the scene at the time. I think one of the things um, that separates uh, your works from I, I watch a lot of YouTube history of game videos. There's some incredibly well put together, edited, and researched ones these days. But one of the things that stands your books apart is that you often get to speak to people who were there at the time more. Um, so who did you manage to uh, get into contact? Contact with for this one i i did speak with uh with john tobias i couldn't get in touch with ed boone or anyone at warner brothers because um mm. warner brothers kind of keeps them all under lock and yeah key. i hear that yeah <laughs> yeah I, i'm hoping that will change um mm. with books two and three but we'll see but in addition right. to you know john 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 really he talked to me just to help me you know make sure i got things uh, accurate uh cool. he was one of like i said 60 interviewees i talked to uh, Ken Fidesna, who was a, a manager who mid- managed the pinball and video groups at Midway. And so the interesting thing about talking to Ken, one thing I like to do in my books is I like to to get a perspective on a game from different vantage points, the fans, the developers, but those developers are often the rank and file. I like to talk to management to see what their view is on games. And Ken gave me access to all sorts of information and meeting notes that he took during meetings with uh, Neil Nicastro, who was running Midway at the time. Things like uh, detailed sales numbers um, mm. that you, I could actually chart. Like, here's how popular Mortal Kombat 2 was relative to the first game or relative to NBA Jam. Uh, here's how, how kind of far the series kind of fell over 3 and 4, just because, you know, 3 especially was had more of a, of a cartoonish element to the fatalities. It was still 2D where more and more 3D fighters were kind of rolling mm. in. Um, and four, it was just kind of too little too late. People were moving on to franchises like Tekken and Soul Calibur. Yeah. Um, but I also talked to a lot of pro players, uh, some who actually compete in, in pro tournaments such as Evo, but also some such as uh, James Fink, who was a, a lead product evaluator at Acclaim. And was kind of one of the people who spearheaded the effort for a claim to get the well, they had the Midway, the license to convert Midway and Williams games yeah. to home consoles. But uh, James was also kind of the forefather of the arcade scene. He would go around New York. He and his uh, disciples, as some of them called themselves, uh, James was kind of the leader. He would teach them things like the anti-air high punch, where you wait mm. until an opponent jumps just so you tap high punch once. And you'll bop them right out of the air. But then as they fall, you can do other hits on them. That's something that wasn't in Street Fighter. Street Fighter's combos were very different. And the funny thing is you mentioned fatalities and guidebooks earlier. Before those were published, knowing finishing moves and combos, those were currency in arcades. The more you knew, the higher your status was. So you'd walk into an arcade and these guys would tell stories of like, 
there were kind of runners, you know, younger kids who would go, oh, these guys from from across the neighborhood are here. <laughs> they're on our turf. And we want, you know, they want to challenge our best guys against their best guys. And other guys I talked to would drive cross country to kind of scout the play- best players in arcades around the United States and play them. I went overseas to talk to international players about what the culture was like in the Mortal Kombat scene there. It was it was just really fascinating. That's something I hadn't got a chance to do with a lot of other books. It was purely behind the closed doors of development studios. With this one, I wanted to go out after the games were released and say, okay, now that it's in fans' hands, what did they do with it? How did this kind of change the way they interacted with not only video games, but other game players? Before the studio, I don't know if they actually made sure that the information got out there or whether it was all kind of uh, word of mouth uh, stuff. But I used to I used to see the the moves printed in the magazines back at the time. And I used to think, how on earth did anyone figure that stuff out? Like, you know, holding block and standing a certain distance away and then put it in putting exactly the right commands within that fairly tight time window. Like it's it's like trying to crack a safe or so or a pin number or something there, there are so many potential combinations <laughs> yeah that's the funny thing so there were several ways that players went about it one was uh in james fink's case you know our came our came <laughs> acclaim would have arcade mm-hmm. cabinets of the games they were converting and of course they had it on free play so they'd probably just start a two-player game and just mess around with different button combinations to see what worked yeah now acclaim took a different tack with the home versions by this time, they talked to Midway, and they not only had the source code, so they could actually see, oh, here's Sub-Zero's Fatality, etc. But yeah. they would actually work out coverage with magazines and say, okay, in this issue during this month, we're going to, quote-unquote, leak the blood code for Mortal yeah, Kombat and Genesis, right. because that's just another promotional tool in of their toolbox. Yeah. Uh, and it was very strategic. Magazines, I, I talked to some, some video game journalists from EGM and GamePro who covered the scene back then, and they said... During that time, cheat codes were currency for game magazines as well. You wanted to be the first one to have the complete fatality list for Mortal Kombat, to have cheat codes like the Blood Code and Genesis. Because that's why the Mega Drive slash Genesis version of Mortal Kombat 1 outsold Nintendo's 5 to 1. Once the word got out about the Blood Code, people were like, okay, this is it. This is the version. Are you familiar with the uh, the famous, I don't know if it spread into the US, but over here there was a, an infamous uh, April Fool played by one of the magazines. I can't remember which one about sellotaping a, t- a two pence piece or something to the top of a Super Nintendo cartridge uh, and all this kind of nonsense to get the blood code uh, <laughs> working on Super Nintendo. I'd never heard about that. I know about EGM um, pranked people into believing that Sheng Long, the the mentor of Ken and Ryu, was playable, but I'd never heard that one. That's hilarious. Yeah, worth looking up. <laughs> so I, I love the way you've already got uh, three volumes planned out. So which uh, kind of where do you start and end with each with so, each volume? Yeah, each of those books. Well, I guess this started with Stay a While and Listen. Uh, initially, Stay a While and Listen was going to be one volume, but my wife. Um, who's a lot wiser than I am, eventually sat me down and said, you know, this is going to take you probably your entire life to write unless you split it up. And I said, well, I don't want to split it up because I don't want to just arbitrarily end it. So I started looking at the eras of Diablo and I could actually see three concrete areas. And now there's a, a fourth, but I won't be writing that 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 story. Um, with Mortal Kombat, I see eras as well. I see the arcade era, one through four. Yep. The the home era, which is uh, Mortal Kombat 5 through 8, and then the reboot era, where with Mortal mm-hmm. Kombat 9, the the former Midway Chicago, now NetherRealm, said, yep. we're going back to basics. We're going to retell this story and take it down a new path. And uh, Long Live Mortal Kombat Round 1 is the one on Kickstarter as of, of March 22nd. It'll be the arcade era. And that one alone is over 200,000 words. And um, it's... I'm really proud of it, and I think there are a lot of stories in there that people will enjoy, and they're all related to the arcade games in the Mortal Kombat franchise and a lot of the home versions of those games. Mortal Kombat's an unusual case in uh, in terms of uh, there actually being some assets from behind the scenes online still. They're obviously quite low resolution these days, but you can actually, because of the nature of the creation of the game, they actually have some behind the scenes footage kind of thing of the of the filming sessions as it were the uh the capturing of the fighters but so that's quite cool in that people have actually get to 
got to see that but did you learn anything more about the 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 casting and the creating the digitized combatants from talking to people involved yeah i definitely learned more about the close-knit relationships between the performers um Mm. you know there's there's dan piscina who's kind of probably the most well-known and that's also because he's a good 10 years older than the rest of the crew like richard divisio yeah and even uh, dan's brother carlos so Mm. i just kind of learned how they all had kind of the same sort of background they trained in martial arts together some of them were even uh stunt doubles they played foot soldiers in teenage mutant Ninja turtles 2 the movie um and you know they had all sorts of of stories about you know how they how they met john tobias and then got to know ed boone as they were working on mortal Kombat. Uh, but really, a lot of my favorite stories were, like I said earlier, talking with Ken Fedesna, but also talking to others in Midway. You know, what was it like kind of to sit across the aisle, so to speak, and and see Mortal Kombat uh, just growing to this major franchise? That's actually probably what surprised me the most was um, Ken Fedesna told me that he and Neil were just looking to fill a spot in Midway's coin-op schedule. They just needed a filler game because they were working on the NBA license for NBA Jam. Yeah. And when when Ed Boone and John Tobias said, hey, we kind of want to make this martial arts game once we're done with our current project, they were like, okay, yeah, you got eight months because we need it out on this date. Wow. And yeah, it was a. Uh, it started with just Ed and John, and they added John Vogel, another artist, and Dan Forden, a sound guy. And a team of four built this game <laughs> within eight months, and with, by the end of ten, it had been out on test for a little bit and rolled out to a 1.0 release. And Mortal Kombat just kind of started as a lark for Ed and John, but also just as something to plug into the schedule for Midway. And then, lo and behold, they had arguably their most successful franchise ever on their hands. Yeah, it's funny. I remember when the first one came out, uh, it was uh, it, it, it kind of had a, a mixed reception from the press over here and from people I knew who went to the arcades a lot. Like uh, Street Fighter 2 was ob- obviously already so popular and it was hard for people to it, it looked so different. And, and that was probably a strength, but it was also probably a bit of a culture shock for people. And I think the first game, obviously, it does sort of betray its rapid development process in some ways in that it doesn't have a huge amount of characters or features. But for all that, they did squirrel a, a number of s- secrets and Easter eggs away in there. Um, obviously, that would be dwarfed in MK by what they, squ- you know, put squirreled away in Mortal Kombat 2 and beyond. <laughs> but, um, but what was the when they had such a tight development schedule, what was the rationale for putting in the extra work and, you know, things like the pit fatalities and all that stuff that must have been, you know, a lot of extra work to incorporate? Yeah, you know, I, I think it was because they were having fun, even though they were working long hours and they had a very tight turnaround. You know, this was a game John and Ed both wanted to make that they would have been willing to work on in their free time, even if they had been assigned to other projects. And so I, I think most of it was born of just a passion and an enthusiasm for what they were making. But also there were some things that just sort of made sense uh, pragmatically. For example, you know, a hidden character reptile. They might have had an idea for hidden character, but what made Reptile work was he was just a palette swap of the ninjas, which were already, you know, one was a palette swap of the other. Yeah. So it was relatively quick for for uh, for Ed, who was the only programmer, to say, oh, I'll just give him Sub-Zero and Scorpion's moves and make him twice as fast, and maybe we'll drop some hints every now and then. And for John to say, oh, yeah, okay, well, we have this color palette. I'll just make him green and black instead of yellow and black or blue and black. Um, and the pit stage was fun because everything they did, according to Ed and John, was was to give you more incentive to give them more quarters. And yeah. they did that through secrets. They did that through, hey, there are fatalities that you need secret codes to to perform. But also in the pit, if you do this uppercut, which is the most powerful non-special move in the game and everyone learned to do it pretty quickly anyway if you happen to do it on this stage they'd fall off the bridge and and be impaled on spikes below and i think that one point i made in the book what fascinated me was not only was that shocking to see but it's also kind of the first time that a stage had more than what you could see just by scrolling left or right there was this whole there was this whole other arena below the pit there was the bottom of the pit and that just it was very 
very Mortal Kombat to say what you see is not always what you get. And, you know, like like we talked about earlier, there was the gore, there was the story, but also the secrets kept people coming back because it's it's funny. Today we take it for granted where anything we hear about, we can just take our smartphones out of our pocket and look it up and confirm or deny it right away. Yeah. Um, or at least you would think so given the political landscape. <laughs> but some yeah. people want to believe what they want to believe. But in Mortal Kombat, if you and I were friends in school and I came to you on the playground and said, hey, I just saw this video game where you can rip people's heads off, your, re- yeah. your response in 1992 probably would have been, oh, come on, that you don't do that in video games because we were thinking of Nintendo and Sega. And so there was there was a lot of fun in just going to the arcade to see if your friend at school was was full of BS or not and to try these codes that someone had scribbled down from a copy of a magazine that was being passed around class. There was there was Mortal Kombat, even though it was kind of lowbrow in terms of the this game systems of the first game, there was something that just tickled the imagination about it in a way that, that Street Fighter kind of didn't. And that just grew from game to game once Ed and John knew what they had on their hands. They just kept adding to it. And although, as we said, Mortal Kombat certainly wasn't the first fighting game wasn't even the first digitized fighting game Mm. yeah fighting game with digitized player characters um what were some of the technical kind of riddles that the team had to solve to get the game working and fun to play not just uh because maybe that's where pit fighter fell down it had the the spectacle to some extent i remember when that first came out and going cool they look like little photographs uh (laughs) but the gameplay perhaps left something to be desired whereas mortal Kombat, although as i say i think the response to the first one was initially actually a little bit muted muted certainly i remember the the reviews of the game in british press being good but not Stella, it was really Mortal Kombat two when th- things really took off. But yeah, what what did they? What kind of hoops did they have to jump through to actually make a a fun game with digitized characters? Yeah, no, that's a great question. There there were several, and I think jumping through those hoops and landing on the other side was what made the game eye catching. If, like you said, not as mechanically deep as in MK two. Um, the first was that. So, so Warren Davis, co-creator of Qbert, was at Midway at the time, and one of his pet projects was digitization. He wanted to make digitization better so that Midway could make better and better games. And um, they used a, a board called the Targa board, which was made by a company. What you could do is you could kind of plug it into your computer and uh, transfer footage from such as like VHS tape and edit it. But you needed a way to edit it. So Warren Davis wrote custom software that he called WTARG for Williams Targa. And Mm -hmm. that required – so we'll start at the beginning. Uh, John and Ed were on every shoot. They they had a list of moves such as, okay, do a high punch, now do a crouching kick, now do a sweep, that sort of thing. But the actors had to go very slowly because John was recording, constantly monitoring the camera and making sure that the moves were slow enough that – he was recording to VHS. So when he took that tape and was digitizing it, the moves had to be slow so he could go out and pick out the keyframes that would actually make up the animations that comprise the move. He also had to go in there, remove a lot of noise, such as the tracking from VHS tapes, pixels right. that would pop up around the characters. And I think what made it special was that he and Ed had this, they had this, they were really a two-headed monster, a yin and a yang. Um mm-hmm. I think John and Ed both had an eye for the best parts of a move to create these animations, but also Mortal Kombat one was, it was, it was um, stiff and clunky in a way that two was not Two felt much more fluid and just pleasant, pleasing to use. But the, the, the impact, the feedback of moves in Mortal Kombat was very powerful. And that was also, that kind of fed into the larger-than-life character sprites. Uh, Pit Fighter was digitized, yes, and Street Fighter 2 was beautifully, gorgeously animated, which has kind of always been a calling card. But the sprites weren't nearly as big as the characters in Mortal Kombat. And I feel Mm. like that kind of fed into this idea that you were playing a movie. They looked like real people. They did that because the character sprites had to be large so you could see as much detail as as possible. And so it was, it was those large sprites and the level of detail, the fluidity of the animations and just the, the feedback and the, the, the audio and visuals that accompanied it, you know, again, 
with everything needing to have as much spectacle as possible, Dan Forden created this this really heavy thud of a of an uppercut connecting, flying into the air, kind of a like a gasp or a a yeah. laugh from the uh, you know unseen um, officiator Shang Tsung, and then the heavy thud and the screen shaking when they landed. That was all. Very, very satisfying, even if you couldn't put your finger on which parts exactly were so satisfying to play. Yeah, and I think it still works. I was going to ask you, like, how much, how important do you think Dan Forden's contribution was to the impact of the game? Uh, not just the the the, the booming uh, uppercuts and things like that, but the whole, yeah, the whole soundscape. Oh, uh, it was hugely important. I, I actually think that overall... Uh, audio design, be it you know, soundtrack, sound effects, uh, ambient, you name it, is often criminally overlooked just because it's a lot easier to write about things we can see and, and, and describe. Um, yeah. You know, Dan kind of tailored each track of Mortal Kombat to the setting. You know, you know, John, again, John Tobias came from a comic book background, so he was interested in creating settings that had a lot of meaning that make you ask questions. And Dan Forden's soundtrack for Mortal Kombat had this really low kind of creepy ambience. Then the music could ramp back up depending on the stage. It really kind of pulled you into this world. I mean, if you think of movies with fight scenes that don't have music, it's a very, very short list, and uh, Dan Forden's sound design is, I would say, indescribable to Mortal Kombat's impact. Yeah. Um, some of those vocal shouts. Uh, he performed many of them, if not all of them himself? That was actually Ed Boon. Um, so oh, it's Ed. Okay. The, the announcer voice was uh, Steve Ritchie, a buddy from Ed's in the pinball group. Um and then Ed Boone did a lot of the screams from Liu Kang's to just the regular ones. He did most of them through, I think, Mortal Kombat 3, maybe 4. I can't remember off the top of my head, but that was just them playing around. So even in Mortal Kombat 2, when they had uh, John Parrish, who had an army background when he played Jax. In fact, a little Easter egg was the combat boots that Jax wears. Those are the combat boots that John wore during his service. Wow. You know, one of Jax's moves is he grabs you and he says, gotcha. And then he starts punching you as you mash the button. That actually wasn't John's voice. That was Ed's. Dan Fordham would just kind of manipulate the sound to make it deeper or higher. And yeah. probably the, the one that Ed gets asked to do the most often is Scorpion's get over here. Uh, just because it's so nice. I iconic. Yeah. Um, and yeah, finally, tell us a bit about what you've learned about the design and the creation of the legendary Goro. Yeah, so Goro was really interesting. I wasn't able to talk to uh, Kurt, I believe his last name is pronounced Chiarelli, who did the the stop motion model. Mm. But um, John and Ed were hands on with that. Again, they were, they were kind of a yin and a yang. They informed the story. They, Kurt knew exactly what sort of of character they wanted and goro was interesting to film because it was stop motion you know they have to very slowly pose him and and take photographs capture frame by frame by frame um just as they did for the real actors such as you know johnny cage and and sonia um but it was a much more laborious process but i think it was also it paid off just as much if not more because i i feel like goro is probably the most popular maybe the second most popular boss character in that franchise next to shao khan who came onto the scene in mortal kombat 2 and that was also um a team effort as well the, the interesting thing is if you go back and play the first game you make your way up the ladder or the battle plan and the third endurance round before goro always takes place in goro's lair and if you listen you'll hear really heavy footsteps almost mm. as if someone's pounding around in uh, pounding across the room above you and the screen will shake when you win that round goro just drops down yeah. poses and then the fight begins again it was like a seamless scene from a movie like okay you beat the small guy now here's the big guy and that really made an impression and again that was that was dan ford and uh john vogel john tobias and ed boone all kind of collaborating to make this they were just having so much fun making this game and goro really left a lasting impression on players yeah i remember there was a running joke in again in a british magazine which is uh, relatively recently finally um gone 
called uh, Games Master, and uh, there was a there was a bit in their tips section every month. There would always be some kid asking, "How do I be Goro in <laughs> Mortal Kombat on either the Mega Drive or the Super Nintendo, or possibly later one of the uh, even one of the uh, the eight bit versions?" Because they managed to they got uh, various people like Sculptured Software to cram versions of Mortal Kombat onto almost everything, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, they really did. I got to write a lot about that. In fact, I wanted to write about Mortal Kombat. That was the impetus for Arcade Perfect. Yes. Um, if I if I couldn't have gotten hold from people uh, from people from Sculptured Software and Probe, I probably wouldn't have have done the project. But um, I, I think another reason the bosses in Mortal Kombat games made such an impression was. Remember, these bosses were designed for arcade games. They were meant to be as difficult as possible, so you'd keep feeding quarters <laughs> to yeah. the machine. So I, I feel like Motaro, the kind of centaur from Mortal Kombat 3, was when yeah. it jumped the shark because he was yeah. in, invulnerable to projectiles. At least Goro, oh. you, you could hit him with Scorpion Spear and reel him over, but uh, Scorpion, or, I'm sorry, Goro was just so memorable because he was so hard beating him felt like such an accomplishment. And then you were on to the real final boss, Shang Tsung, who was actually a bit easier. But, yeah. uh, you know, Kentaro, the, the four-armed um, Shokan mm. from Mortal Kombat 2, I was just thinking about uh, other examples of Dan Forden's impact. You know, you, you can fight in Shao Kahn's arena where the emperor is sitting in his chair just kind of watching people kill each other. And uh, that stage accomplished a lot. First, if you scrolled in either direction, you saw Sonya and then on the other side, Kano in prison. And that kind of answered the immediate question of, oh, hey, where are these two characters? Because again, that's something that Street Fighter didn't do. Every character yeah. turned, they were just joined by more. Mortal Kombat would take characters away and you always wanted to know why, especially if one of your favorites was gone. But the second thing Dan Forden did that had a lot of impact in MK2 is when you fought Kentaro and then Shao Kahn, you were in this Coliseum. And the crowd would just roar whenever they would hit you. And even thinking about it now, I've got goosebumps because it really added to this big fight feel. Again, it was like something out of a movie. It was just phenomenal. Yeah. Cinematic stuff. And yeah, uh, even the, the tech of the actual cabinet itself. Uh, I remember playing Narc, which was a predecessor in some ways, technically to mm. Mortal Kombat, um, digitized graphics again to a certain extent and um, and just incredibly loud, booming sound. So I guess by this point, Midway was convinced of the worth of spending a bit extra money to put some proper bassy speakers in every cabinet. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, again, Mortal Kombat 1 was kind of a filler game, and, and Midway didn't really want to back that horse until it started winning a lot of races. And then, you know, with Mortal Kombat 2, I mean, one thing I learned from the cast and the crew was that, you know, they, they got a room upgrade. Oh, I, I, I think they stayed in the same room, but they were able to paint the walls blue uh, halfway through uh, production for Mortal Kombat 2. They got a new camera. So they could actually, they were recording digitally. They were able to eliminate the VHS middleman. Yeah. You know, Mortal Kombat was really kind of the, the favorite child. Anything those guys needed. I mean, the, their schedules were still tight, but Midway was willing to give them a lot bigger investment because Mortal Kombat was kind of the uh, the king of arcades for a long time. Yeah. And so, uh, obviously, MK3, M MK3, although I still argue that it wasn't ultimate because it lost a lot of the backdrops from vanilla <laughs> mk3 uh i was very frustrated by that getting ultimate mortal kombat 3 for my saturn expecting an arcade perfect version and it wasn't at all bad you know, what's funny i asked about that okay and one thing uh someone told me i think it might have been john tobias he said well actually so so we'd created these four new backgrounds yeah and we had the game cycle them two or three times because we wanted uh, you know, we wanted customers to go, oh, this isn't just Mortal Kombat 3. Yes. These are new levels. But then right. if you kept playing, you would go into Mortal Kombat 3's backgrounds, but some of them were cut from the home versions due to space. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that was that was a, I, I remember uh, saying to my partner at the time playing on the Saturn, like, it's like it's got stuck. I was expecting when I got UMK3 for it to have all the content of uh, of MK3 and more. Yes. Um, 
and and it was like yeah i i and i i did have a suspicion that yeah maybe they were just trying to highlight the new backdrops uh some of which were very cool but it was but it was just it just seemed to never get past the the four or maybe you would occasionally see one of the other ones but uh yeah it was a frustrating business anyway uh you know that was that was 45 quid i spent uh 25 years ago or whatever i was right Um, there with you i was right there with you yeah And so uh, this book, this volume, I should say, uh, goes up as far as the uh, the difficult, awkward transition into the Polygon era. Um, I guess under pressure from what the the state of the art, where the industry was going, and um, and I don't think uh, I mean I I really haven't played MK4 a lot at all. Um, I don't remember thinking that it was uh regarded as a complete disaster it was just perhaps it was the product of it was a it was a sudden big technical shift and, it, and that must have been a major mega challenge it it was for a couple of reasons um you know i've described john and ed as sort of a yin and yang but by this point they were they each spent it's funny because the the game entered development around late 95, early 96, and by which time they'd been working on, on Mortal Kombat games since late 1991. They'd put out four games, including mm-hmm. UMK3, and the arcade, the arcade cycle is exhausting. You never really get much of a break because you know, there's so many competing games out there competing for quarters that as soon as you finish one game, you kind of take a breath and then you're on to the next one. And both John and Ed wanted to do other things. So this was a game where, of course, John Tobias was still very involved in Mortal Kombat 4, but he was also learning how to to lead his own team with Mortal Kombat Mythologies, which was a kind of a beat-em-up RPG hybrid. And then Ed was, you know, Ed, like John, was learning how to lead a team solo, but he was also kind of trying to wrap his head around, how do I work with 3D engines? And um, I think the result was Mortal Kombat 4 is... Is definitely the least popular, but I'm in a vocal minority where it's actually my favorite from the arcade era. Um, okay. Not because of the graphics. I, I didn't think the graphics were bad at the time. I thought they were great. In fact, I, I think mm. that in terms of you know the early 3D games of that era, Mortal Kombat 4 has aged better than many, maybe even most, but mm. for several reasons. One, it, it was kind of a return to the, the darker theme that was lost in 3. I mean, 3 had, you know, Jax turning into a giant and stepping on people and Every time you would explode someone, there'd be like 16 skulls and eight rib cages on the screen. It was just <laughs> yeah. like, eh, this is a bit too much. But, uh, you know, Mortal Kombat 4, they said no friendships, no babalities, just fatalities. Mm. Uh, the roster was great, but it also had a much more open combo system. I, I thought that the one way MK3, there was definitely a big drop off in MK3 and UMK3. First of all, because when MK3 shipped, a lot of people said, wait, 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 no Scorpion, no Katana, no Reptile, well, no mm. quarters. And they kind of waited for Ultimate. But by the time Ultimate came out, which was really just six to seven months later, yeah. they were maybe invested in, you know, Tekken or Soul Edge or something. Uh, yeah. Virtual Fighter especially was a huge one over Yeah. Um, but, you know, those games also had locked-in combos. They were kind of like phone numbers. If you didn't know your character's combo phone numbers, you could not deal as much damage as the other guy. Mortal yeah. Kombat 4, everyone had the same base combos, but you could kind of mix and match combo moves with your special moves to kind of create your own. And I, I felt that that hit two birds with one stone. It it, uh, it was deep for veterans like me who wanted to experiment more, but it was also, it made the game more accessible so that if you didn't know combos, you could quickly learn them and have a fighting chance, which I, I felt was something lost in Mortal Kombat 3. And in fact, that's something I explore in this book is... Um, a lot of fighting game designers admitted, you know, as, as the 90s went on, we started designing for the hardcore player. And that's a, really a, a fraction of a fraction of the arcade's consumer base. I mean, yeah. arcades are supposed to be where you go to kill time before a movie or after dinner. And the games, I mean, Street Fighter 3, great game, but so complex that a lot of people just gave up, which is why Street Fighter 4 was really kind of a remake of 2. It was Capcom saying, this is yep. the one you loved, remember? Come yep. back. And, uh, Very true. You know, that happened with Mortal Kombat as well, and I thought Mortal Kombat 4 did a lot to solve it, but a lot of the, the pro players, they didn't like the universal combo system. They liked being mm. kind of being in the know of having the best combos memorized, and yeah, it was it was interesting. It's, it's my favorite from that time, but again, I'm in a vocal minority. 
No, it's interesting because that is the, the story of so many genres is the 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 forever as as they continue, whether it's fighting games or shmups or even uh, FPSs and things like that, that sort of balancing act between making them at all accessible and pleasurable for the newcomer as well as uh, and the more casual player as well as still satisfying the uh, the dedicated devoted fan base exactly and th- there was a lot of other of other things happening as well you know uh, first of all home ports of arcade games were getting closer and closer to arcade perfect which made a lot of fans go it's not one-to-one but it's close enough i don't really need to go to the arcade anymore second home games in general were becoming bigger and grander than anything you could play at arcades even though the graphics were still several steps behind you had games like Final Fantasy VII, Super Mario 64, Resident Evil 2, where there was they just had more depth than arcade games because arcade games were never meant to be played for hours at a time. You played for 30 to 90 seconds and then walked away. And there was just kind of more to capture your attention at home, and you weren't constantly continuing to pay in order to play the story and see what happened next. Fascinating stuff, and plenty of it to go round three volumes of, of text uh so um what's the uh, we, we'll we'll put this interview out at the time of the launch of your kickstarter so tell people where they need to go to uh support and get involved absolutely so long live mortal Kombat will be on kickstarter as of tuesday march 22nd uh, pushed it back a couple of weeks just to get everything just right. You can find that on Kickstarter, or if you follow me on Twitter at davidalcraddock.com, it will be in the pinned comment, or you can just go to longlivemortalcombat.com and use the links there. Fantastic stuff. Listener, also, don't forget, we did a podcast on the first three and a half, if you include Ultimate Mortal Kombat <laughs> games, some time ago, back in Kane and Rinse issue number 286. You can find that on our website or on Spotify to uh, whet your appetite for more Mortal Kombat. David, uh, I hope you'll come back for volume two and we can talk about the the home years. The, the, the I mean, there's probably as much to talk about, but it's perhaps, you know, the years when things drifted for a lot of people definitely for a lot of people me included i I still kept up with every mortal kombat game the day it came out but yeah there's a lot to discuss there because i I think the teaser is for a lot of people even the core fans the 3d mortal kombat games never really completely felt like mortal kombat games so it'll be an interesting era to write about for sure that's it uh what's the have you got a kind of schedule uh in mind for for producing that second volume it'll probably be sometime in in 2024 just because usually after a project uh this big like i said it's over 200,000 words i i usually like yeah. a, a palate cleanser where i'm already writing uh several other things including um going back to a novel i wrote um in 2021 alongside writing the first draft of long live mobile combat one so um probably 2024 i would say okay well hopefully we'll we'll still be going and we'll uh, we'll get to talk to you again then but for now david thanks once again for joining us and talking more combat this time oh thank you it's my pleasure as always <laughs>